Uncertainty uh, can be a very terrible feeling. Uh, Many of us have felt it and know what it's like to feel uncertain. Uh, Many of us have stood in the uh, grocery store line uh, and have swiped the card uh, and have been uncertain uh, if it was going to go through, praying that it would so we could buy groceries. Um, Many of us have uh, driven a car that has been on E for the last 30 miles, uh, and we are uncertain uh, if we're going to make it to the next gas station. Uh, We have been uncertain if we're going to have enough money to pay the bills. We have been uncertain uh, about a relationship with a friend, uh, whether they have betrayed us or not, or whether we can trust them. Some of us have uncertainty in, in our marriage. We're, we're not sure if, if the marriage is going to make it or if our spouse is still uh, going to be committed. Uh, we, we, we have uncertainty in a variety of different things, uncertainty in health, in our health, in a, in a family member's health. Are, are they going to be okay? And, and oftentimes, again, uncertainty is a very, very terrible feeling. But among all of those things that I just named, I would say the greatest and worst uncertainty is to be uncertain whether or not God exists. That is a terrible uncertainty to have. Does God exist? And, and how can we know? I mean, we're, we're talking about something with massive implications because if God does not exist, then um, your happiness and whatever it is that you want to do should be the highest commodity. You should not worry about uh, anything else or anyone else. Just do whatever it is that feels good and whatever it is that makes you happy and, and forget about everyone else because life is short. Do what makes you feel good. That's how you should live if God doesn't exist. But if God does exist, then this radically changes everything. That that means that there is a God in heaven and that we should try to figure out who he is, what he's like. Is he placing any demands on us or or is he some type of distant God who has set the universe up and is just kind of sitting back and watching it roll? I mean, mean, uh, is, is... uh, was Muhammad right? Um, was Muhammad really a prophet of God? If so, then should we be following the five tenets of Islam? What, what about Hinduism? I mean, did they get it right? Should we be worshiping uh, the, the gods that they propose? I mean, so, so this is a terrible thing to be uncertain about. And, and, and I think agnosticism is a, is a terrible thing. And I say to my agnostic friends, listen, the answer to this question is too massive to leave it unanswered. Okay, if you say, is the building on fire? You should probably know the answer to that question. And if you don't know, you should probably investigate until you figure it out, right? That's a pretty important question. Is the building on fire? I I say that to say we must be certain whether God exists or he doesn't, because the implications, again, are eternal and massive, and they mean so much in our day-to-day life. We must be certain whether or not God exists. In addition, here's another terrible thing to be uncertain about. If God does exist, and he is the God of the Bible, then when I stand before him, to be judged, what will I say and what will I do? Will I, will I make it out okay? What if hell is real? What if there really is a place of conscious eternal torment and, and, and I got to go there? What, I mean, can we be certain that when we stand before God, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant? Can we be certain of that? Because uncertainty in that area is terrible. I mean, what about this? What if heaven is real? What if there really is a place um, where there is no more sin, no more shame, no more crying, all the things that are untrue or put away, all the things that are broken or mended? What if that place is real and I don't get to go? Don't you? I mean, I want to go there, don't you? So can, can we have, again, that's, that's the big idea. Uncertainty is a terrible thing. Can we be certain God exists? And can we be certain that when we stand before him, he will say, you're my son, you're my daughter, and I love you. Can we have certainty in those things? 1 John 5, 13. Listen to this, this is incredible. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God 
that you may know that you have eternal life. John sits down to pin these three great letters with this aim. His aim is certainty. He wants you to know that God exists, that God is real. He wants you to know that you can have eternal life. He wants you to be certain that eternal life, you have obtained it, that you have it now. It's not just eternity in the future, but as as Christians, we possess eternal life even now. And when we stand before God, we we don't have to give him our resume. We give him Jesus' resume. And he does say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we are welcomed into his kingdom. And of those things, we can be certain. This is great news this morning that we can be certain of these things because they're written down for us here. We can be certain God is real. We can be certain that Jesus Christ has come who is fully God, fully man. He has come to this earth, God in the flesh. We can be certain that we are sons and daughters of God. We can be certain that one day we will be with him in heaven if he doesn't first show up to take us all with him. We can be certain of these things and that's exactly why John sets out to write these three great letters. Now, this is not a prideful certainty. This is not a certainty that says, I know I'm going because of all the awesome things that I've done. Or I know I'm going to heaven because, or I know I'm a Christian because uh, I read King James only. Uh, I go to church every Sunday. Uh, you know, I was a deacon. I, this is not a prideful certainty at all. This is a certainty in the promises of God, in the character of God, and in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's certainty in those things that give us great certainty to know that God is real and that we can stand before him. Okay, so um, today we are going to be working through the first chapter um, in 1 John. I, I encourage you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up and get it to that place. If you have a smartphone, go ahead and pull up your Bible app and get to 1 John chapter 1. It's going to be helpful if you can put your eyes on it. If not, it will come up on the screen for you. I have two points uh, in my sermon today. I know that's very shocking for some of you, but I have only two points Okay, point number one is this. If you're into note-taking or jotting things down, you can. Number one, we can have certainty of his existence. We can have certainty of God's existence. Number two, we can have certainty of salvation in how we have dealt with sin. Okay, so, so the, the first part we're gonna see in, in verses one through four, John is going to make these astonishing claims that he has seen God, he knows him, he's touched him, he hung out with him. In in the back half, so five through 10, he is going to talk about ways that people deal with sin and how you can know that you are saved in how you have dealt with sin. What, What have you done with sin? How have you dealt with it? Okay, so those are the two big ideas. So, Diving in, number one, we can have certainty of God's existence. I'm just going to read verses one through three, and then we will work through them. Verses one through three, chapter one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And I'll stop right there, okay? Now, this letter is incredible. The, the beginning is such a stark difference than any other epistle or any other letter we see in the New Testament. They usually start like this. Uh, you know, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the churches in such and such. Greetings. You know, that, that's how they start. That, that's how this one begins like this. That which was from the beginning. There's a a mystery here that that John opens up his letter with to to capture you, to to pull the reader in. There's there's a a mystery that's happening here, okay? 
that which was from the beginning. We, we must now ask, what is the witch? Now, I know it's October. Don't think about Halloween, which W-H-I-C-H, that witch. I want to read this again, and you just listen. Just count them. Count them how many times he uses this word because he's creating a mystery and drawing us in. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. Okay, so you get the point. There's six of them there. There's a lot. So, so he's creating this mystery, and he begins with that which, whatever the which is, was in the beginning, the beginning. Why is he saying beginning? Well, what does that remind us of? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. So whatever which is here he's referring to, he's talking about God. In addition, as John pins his gospel account, okay, so, so you guys know we talked about this last week. The apostle John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, which is the letters we're studying. In addition, he wrote the gospel of John. In addition, he wrote Revelation. So as he sat down to pin his gospel account, how does he begin in, first, in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the word, you guys know it, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So, so he begins by whatever this which is he's discussing, whatever word he's referring to here, he begins by saying it's God. We're talking about God here. John says, I'm gonna open up my letter talking about God. Okay, so John, do you believe in God? Yep. How do you know? I mean, you're saying you're talking about God because you talked about Genesis and you also wrote it in your letter. John, how can you be sure? Well, he says this, that which was shown in the beginning, we have heard it, which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and touched. So, so John, why do you believe in God? Well, because I heard him. Um, I saw him and I touched him with my very hands. That's why I believe in God, John says. And the life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed. Okay, so John says, I believe in God. Why do you believe in God? Because I saw him, I touched him and I heard him. Okay, so John, what are you doing here? Why are you writing this letter? Well, I'm here to testify and proclaim to you these things. He's here to tell us about God. That's what he's saying. Okay, so now uh, that we've got through verses one and two, we're, we're really curious now. Can, can you explain who is the, this witch that you're referring to? Verse three again, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed fellowship is with the father and with, here it is, his son, Jesus Christ. John in verses one and two and almost all the way through three is building up this great crescendo which leads to Jesus Christ. That is his crescendo. That's his big point. Let's read it again. Watch this. Am I the only person excited about this? Okay, I'm just gonna read it again. Let's start back in verse one. That Jesus, which was from the beginning, Jesus we heard, Jesus we have seen with our eyes, Jesus we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life. Jesus was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That Jesus, almost said it, that Jesus which we have heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That is a pretty good start to an awesome letter. So this is how he opens. He opens to tell us about Jesus, who is God, fully God, fully man, come in the flesh to live the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. This is what John believes about God. John, what do you believe about God? I believe in him. Awesome. Who is he? It's Jesus. Okay. Now, Maybe there are skeptics in the room. 
Maybe some of you have friends or family who are skeptics, and, and at this point, they might say, um, well, isn't John, uh, you know, just some kind of crazy, you know, nut job out on his own, calling one of his buddies, right? We know they were friends, calling one of his buddies God, okay? As a matter of fact, isn't that how cults get started, right? One lone crazy guy, either he himself claiming to be God or claiming someone else is God, and, and the claims are never verified, the claims are never backed up. I mean, how, how and why should we believe this guy, John, who just said Jesus Christ is God? Why should we believe him? Well, let's read back through it again because I want you to listen for these three words, we, our, and us, okay? Listen for we, our, and us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. That which was with the Father was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. Okay, John, um, who is the we? We talked about the which. We, we know that's, we get that one. Um, what about the we? Who is the we in the hour? And I mean, is this the editorial we? Is this the royal we? Right, I, I, I had a teacher um, growing up in school, and she used to say uh, we all the time, and she would say it like this, we don't call out in class. You know, we, we raise our hand. I'm thinking, everybody in here calls out. Who, what we are you talking about, lady? You got a mouse in your pocket? Or, I mean, what, what we are we referring to? Acts chapter 10. We are going to jump right into the middle of a sermon that Peter the leader of the disciples, preaches. I'm going to jump into verse 39, and, and, and we're going to discover who this we, our, and us is that is being referred to in 1 John chapter 1 in the first three verses. Acts chapter 10, verse 39 says this, and we, there we are again, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us, who is that, whoever these chosen people he's talking about, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Okay, Peter here is preaching a sermon, and he begins to talk about these chosen men who were set up by God to be the carriers of this gospel message. Who were those people? Um, well, it is the 12 disciples plus Paul. So the 12 disciples plus Paul, or the apostles. What Jesus did as he lives his life and he's walking through, he gathers to him essentially 12 witnesses of everything that he did, showing himself to be fully God, fully man, showing his atoning work on the, Christ, on the cross, showing that he went into the grave, showing that he resurrected, he appeared to them, he talked with them, he ate with them. You remember doubting Thomas? I won't believe until, right? He, he appeared to them, showed them the scars in his hands, and says, all right, you guys got this. I'm choosing you, you 12, you guys are my guys. I'm entrusting you as the chosen apostolic band to carry this message to the whole world. It's on you. I'm choosing you specifically. And then we know later on, he shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus choosing him as an apostle. And so you have the 12 apostles plus Paul as the chosen 12, the capital A apostles. And they are the ones who then take that gospel message. So when John is saying, we, this is the message we proclaim to you, the we that he is referring to is the authoritative apostolic band. John, by including himself in this we is saying, do you want to know the true message about God? Well, then listen to us. I am a part of that us. We are the apostles and we are the authority on the issue. Now, 
Here's what's so amazing to me. What's so amazing to me is the mounting speculation around the real Jesus, okay? If you have a television set, I'm sure at some point you have turned it on and there has been some strange documentary gonna tell you about the real Jesus, right? And, and, and some of those documentaries will, will, will say that, you know, he was an extraterrestrial, you know, and, and uh, others will say he faked his death on the cross and, and that's how he, you know, resurrected and, and really, uh, you know, he went on to live a happy life and got married and had kids and white picket fence and, and all the rest. And, and so there's all these different theories trying to tell you about the real Jesus and, 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 and you should believe this about him or believe this and all kinds of speculation around it. And that is insane to me when you have these guys who were there and saw it and experienced it. And then Jesus himself said to them, I'm selecting you because you guys were here and saw the whole thing. I want you to write it down and I want you to tell everybody. And that's exactly what they did. And so, so to, to listen to anyone else speculate about who Jesus is would be like listening to me speculate about uh, how to execute a proper moon landing. You know, I don't, I'm not an astronaut. Why would you listen to me about that? So if we want to know about Jesus, who should we ask? Well, the apostles, the guys who were there, the guys that saw it, the guys that experienced it, the guys that, that went all the way through it, these men heard and saw and touched, and therefore they should be taken as the forward authority on who Jesus is. Now, what he says at the end, I want to be very clear if I have not belabored this point enough. Listen to what he says. That verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, that is the apostolic band, fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So to have fellowship with God means you are believing what the apostles said. That's, that's, what, that, that's what that means. Again, I'll move on with this. Imagine this in court. Imagine a courtroom. There's the judge. John takes the stand. John, do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Why do you believe in God, John? Uh, well, because I saw him, I heard him, and I touched him. Okay, and who is it? It's Jesus. Okay, next. Uh, who's the next witness? And Peter comes up. Then after Peter, James. Then Matthew. Then Thomas, okay, then Thaddeus, then, then, the, then all the rest of the guys, all 13 of them, they line up, they all give the same testimony, they all say the same thing. What is that judge going to do? Case closed. Jesus is God. I mean, what more do we want at this point with all of this evidence? It seems a bit unreasonable to deny that Jesus is fully God and fully man and has come in human form all those years ago. Verse four, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John opens his letter with this exploding, soaring crescendo, telling us about God, telling us who God is, giving us evidence, saying it's not just me, I'm, I'm here with this apostolic band, we all saw it, we all agree with it, and we're here to tell you about it. We want you to believe too, to have fellowship with us is to have fellowship with God, to believe what we say is, is to believe what God says because he has given us his authority. And then before he moves on to the next section, he closes it with this very curious verse. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some, some translations might say your joy, some translations say our joy, it depends on uh, which translation you're looking at. Um, honestly, I don't think it matters much because I think, I, I think he's meaning the same thing. I think John is saying that my joy and, and his reader's joy are inextricably linked. So for, for them to have joy is for him to have joy. When, when he has joy, they have joy. When they have joy, he has joy. The question is, this giant um, theological doctrinal statement about the hypostatic union that they saw and touched in Jesus and all that stuff, how does that then link to joy? That was my question. I mean, we're proclaiming, we're testifying, we've seen it, God manifest, uh, and we're doing it for joy. 
I think the answer to that question is found in chapter 2, verse 2, or verse 1, where he, where he addresses them as my little children. John is writing them to proclaim to them Jesus is God, and he is writing to them as a father, as a loving apostolic father to a church where he is calling them children. Now, to any parent in the room, we're automatically seeing the link now to joy. Again, for any parent in the room who, who is a believer, what brings our hearts great joy but to see our children follow in the footsteps of great Christian orthodoxy. To, to see our children fold their hands and pray. To, to see our children pick up their Bibles and read them. To, to see our children gather with the saints and hear gospel preaching and raise their hands as the worship band plays and to sing the words from the screen and mean them from, from our... I mean, what would give us Christian parents more joy than to see our children do that? And that's exactly what John is doing. He wants them to have joy, which true joy is found in Jesus Christ. And if they find true joy in Jesus Christ, that's going to give John and the apostolic band joy. Now, moving on to the second point in the sermon, number two. That was a pretty good introduction to a letter, wasn't it? Man. Number two, we can have certainty of salvation by or in how we have dealt with sin. Okay, so we've seen verses one through four. Now let's move on to five through 10. Okay, now I wanna introduce this section by saying, What's going to happen in here is that John is going to show three ways people deal with sin. They are wrong ways. They are incorrect ways, okay? You have to remember why, what's another reason he's writing this letter? He's writing this letter to combat false doctrine, okay? So he's going to say, here are some ways that people deal with sin and they're wrong, and then he's going to tell us the right way or, or how we can know that we're saved if we have dealt with our sin in this way. So he's going to present three ideas. Just look at verses 6, 8, and 10. Look at verse 6. It begins like this. If we say, okay, if we say. Now look at verse 8. How does it begin? If we say. Now look at 10. If we say. Each one of those verses, 6, 8, and 10, will present an idea Okay, he's going to say, if we say this, if we say X, but then in verses 7 and 9, he is going to correct those. You guys still with me? Don't go cross-eyed yet. Okay, so if we say in verse 6, 7, he corrects that. So, so it's going to go negative, positive, negative, positive, negative. That, that's how this next section is going to go. Let's start this way. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So, he, so he's going somewhere with this, just like I am, I promise. He's going somewhere with this, but before he gets to six through 10, he's gotta lay this rock solid foundation to correct bad theology, to lay the foundation of good theology so that when he talks about sin, everything's clear. How does he begin? This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is. To me in my mind, as I read that part, I had a big giant blank right there. And, and I thought you could put a lot of words in there. God is, right? God is light. God is love. God is hope. God is peace, right? Are all those things true? Yes. But he chooses this word for a very particular reason. He says, God is Light, God is light. Now, if we, if this verse were a swimming pool, it would be a thousand foot deep. In the Old Testament, God shows up to Moses as a burning bush giving off light. In the desert, God shows up as a pillar of fire lighting the way for the people of Israel. Psalm 27 says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12. During the transfiguration, his face shone like a bright light of the sun. And Paul says, Jesus dwells in unapproachable light in 1 Timothy. This is rich doctrinal theological heritage that's pulling from all around the scriptures as he begins and opens with 
God is light. So why does he say God is light here? Again, he's going to go on to talk about sin. So I think first we need to see that when he says God is light, he's saying because God exposes sin. When we come before God, he is a bright shining light. When God shines his light on the hearts of men, we see and discover our our sinful natures. Do you remember the story in Isaiah where Isaiah um, goes before the Lord and, and, and it gives this vivid description and he had a, this, the train on his robe filled the whole temple and there's angels flying around and there's smoke and everything. I mean, it's going crazy. When Isaiah goes before the Lord, here's exactly what he says. God's light shined upon him and he says, woe is me, I am undone or I am broken because I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. You see, when God's light shined on Isaiah, he was exposed. He was out in the open because of God's holiness and his righteousness, Out of all of the other describing words in the Bible, holiness is the key word to describe God in all of the scriptures. And this word light is pointing to that. God is holy. He is altogether separate. So when we stand before a holy God, we are exposed for who we truly are, which is sinners and broken people. So he's saying God is light. God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay, it's not a big deal. He says, no, I am a holy God and I will expose sin because God is light. Here's the good news though. Light also saves us from the dangers of darkness, doesn't it? Who in here has walked through your house in the middle of the night in the dark to get a glass of water or milk and it's gone bad for you? Okay, (laughs) Light saves us from danger, doesn't it? So, so you could step on a nail, you could fall down the stairs, you could hit your head on something, but light is, is a way to show that God is not only the exposer of sin, but he is the savior from danger. When the lights come on, you can see where you're going. So he begins this beautiful treatise by saying God is light, meaning He exposes sin and he's the savior from danger and in him there is no darkness at all, okay? Now, got the light metaphor? You guys with that? Foundation's been laid. Now we can step into the first wrong treatment of sin. Verse six. If we say, okay, so starting the idea, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, okay? If we say we have fellowship with him, what does that mean? If we say we're Christian, if we say uh, I'm saved, if we say I'm a believer, if we say, okay, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, Walk uh, in the Bible refers to a way of living or a pattern of living. So if you say, I'm a Christian, yet you have a pattern of living that is darkness, what's, the, what's he saying? Well, that's wrong. You're lying. We say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. So, so the first false view we see about sin is that we can accept sin freely and openly. That is the first false view, okay? If, if you accept sin freely and openly, then you're probably not a Christian. If you say, I'm a Christian, yet I walk in darkness, meaning my pattern and my way of life is darkness, but you say, oh, no, I'm, I'm a Christian, then you're probably not a Christian, So what exactly does it mean to walk in darkness? Because this is so important for us to understand. Because listen, what John is saying here is it doesn't matter if you have the right answers. Now you need to start with the right answers, but only having the right answers isn't the whole thing. There's something else to it. It's walking in light, but we're not there yet. He's saying 
It's not just about having the right answers, which makes you truly safe. So let's answer this question. I wanna be very clear. What does it mean to walk in darkness? Here is what I wrote down. It means to sin habitually and unrepentantly. Okay, it, it means that you accept sin, you, you're walking in this thing that you know is in direct contradiction of what God has written in his word. You do it continually and unrepentantly, meaning you don't ask for, you don't think it's that big a deal. It's my life, I mean, sure, I'm a Christian, but this is my life and I can do whatever I want. It means you keep on looking at porn and you don't truly repent of it. It means you keep verbally abusing your wife. It means you keep on getting drunk on the weekends. It means as a Christian man, you keep on chasing after an unsaved girl to be in a relationship with. It means that you keep sleeping together even though you're not married. Here's another. It means you clearly ignore a direct command of Scripture and you keep doing it and you're not sorry for it. If that is the case, all indicators point to the conclusion of this verse, which says you do not practice the truth, which means you are not saved. Okay, that, that's what it means to walk in, in darkness. The reality of this is terrifying because it means we must first investigate ourselves. Am I walking in darkness? Am I looking at the commands of Scripture? I know God says not to do this, but I'm going to willingly, unrepentantly, repeatedly, habitually do it. We must investigate first ourselves. And in addition, this reality is terrifying because it means we must have uncomfortable conversations with friends, family, and coworkers with whom we know they say they have a relationship without righteousness. That's ultimately what this is describing. It's someone who claims to have a relationship without any righteousness. Listen, friends, it's not your righteousness that saves you, but if you are saved, you will walk in righteousness. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, as terrifying as that verse is, and as somber and awful as the room feels right now, let's read verse seven very quickly. But, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> There's a but there. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Everybody take a deep breath and let it out. Okay, we're in a safe place now, right? We're good. Okay, so here's what's so awesome about this. Okay, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in perfection as he is in perfection, is that what it says? No, that is not the contrast. The contrast is not darkness and perfection. The contrast is darkness and light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, that's Christian brothers and sisters in the church, and the blood of Jesus cleanses our sins, okay? This is great news. So, so now we've got it. We've answered what does it mean to walk in darkness. Now, now we answer what does it mean to walk in light. We know it doesn't mean perfection. How do we know that? Well, because in verse 8 it says, if we say we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves. So we know we're sinners. So the standard isn't perfection. What is the standard? What does it mean to walk in light? Well, here's what I've jotted down. It means... The honest pursuit of holiness and fellowship with believers. The honest pursuit of holiness. Meaning, I know God says not to do this, and I, I want to do it. 
but I'm gonna take steps and I'm gonna put barriers in the way so I don't do those things. I'm gonna pray and ask Jesus to help me not do that. I'm gonna ask him to send his spirit to empower me to fight that sin. I'm not just gonna give myself over to it. Do you see the difference between light and dark? Darkness says, I know God says not to do it, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Walking in the light says, I know I'm not supposed to do that and I'm feeling pulled that way, but I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna ask for help. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put barriers in between me and that because I don't wanna do that. We say, how has God asked me to live? Now, how can I do that? What are some areas of sin that I'm walking in and how by God's grace can I avoid those? How can I combat these sinful thoughts and sinful desires through God's word and prayer? Listen, friends, if that is your heart, that is great evidence you're saved. If, if I'm meeting and counseling with someone and they say, I don't, I don't know if I'm saved, could you, could you help me? I, I wanna talk to them about their affection for Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Say, yes, I love Jesus. Do you wanna obey him? Yes, and I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying as hard as I know how to do that and I'm praying that he would send his spirit to help me do that. I'm going, sounds like you're saved to me. But the person who says, I know Jesus says not to do this, but, but I feel like I have to do it. Sounds, sounds like you're walking in darkness. The second part of this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's, that's us. That's people here in this room. That's the heart that says this. Who can I connect with that will help me walk through this? What other believers in the church have struggled with this also? What spiritual mother or father in the church can I reach out to who will labor with me as I try to walk in the light? Where can I commit to a local church as a sign of my desire to live a holy and separate life? I need and want a church where I can be about Jesus' mission, which will keep me away from sin. Do you guys know that? When you get on Jesus' mission, it helps keep you away from sin. If you're serving Jesus, loving Jesus, helping other people, praying for other people, you don't have time to do that other stuff. And so a, a heart that's walking in the light says, not only do, do I want to pray and combat sin in my own life, I want to get other people involved. I'm not a Lone Ranger Christian. I'm not out there doing it by myself. I'm connecting with a local body of believers. I'm saying, hey, does anybody else struggle with this? I struggle with this right here, and you name it. You say, anybody else struggle with that? In a good, honest church, there'll be men and women who go, yep. And then you join together in that bond to fight sin together and walk in the light together. Now, if you're walking in the light and you're doing that fellowship thing, here is the beautiful and great news, the rest of verse 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood, the blood does that. Now, um, for some of us who maybe don't have a, a big idea on Old Testament uh, Jewish history, you're going, blood, that's, you know, blood is gross. But blood, like after you touch blood, you then go use water to wash your hands to cleanse you from the blood. Blood itself doesn't cleanse, blood is gross, right? And I mean, that's kind of how my brain works. What this is pointing to, when it says it is the blood that cleanses, it is pointing to the work that Jesus did on the cross, okay? What that means is he has already accomplished the cleansing for the Christian, so when you're walking in the light, that's why the demand is not perfection. The demand is progress. You don't have to be perfect. He's already been perfect for us. So, again, if we want to be sure that we are saved, we expose our sin and walk in the light, that shows we're saved. Okay, you want to know you're saved? Question. Have you exposed your sin and are you walking in the light? If you can say yes, that's a really good indicator. 
Walking, listen to this, this is so cool. I, I copied this from somebody else, so I'm not this smart. Here we go. Walking in the light is increased sensitivity to sin and an increased desire to eliminate anything from your life that displeases God. Okay, did you hear that? I'm gonna read it again. Walking in the light is increased sensitivity to sin. Okay, so, so you're looking at your life and you're seeing, oh man, that there, there. I, I used to not think that was, but it probably is, right? An increased sensitivity to sin. And an increased desire to eliminate anything from your life that displeases God. So, so you're more sensitive. Man, I know this and this and this. And, and now there's a desire to get rid of those things because they displease God and you love him so much, you don't want to displease him. That's walking in the light. Verse eight. If we say, okay, so he's setting up another statement. If we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves, okay? This is the person uh, who denies sin exists. We don't, sin, that's old and silly. You see, the first person said, oh yeah, sin's, sure, I, I know God said not to do this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. It's sin and I'm just gonna walk in it. The person in verse eight says, sin, no. I mean, that's, that's old stuff. I mean, sin and righteousness, our, our free world, our um, you know, sexually liberated and highly skeptical world doesn't have any place for sin and righteousness. I mean, that's old stuff. That's way back in the 1950s and the 1900s. You know, we, we don't do that anymore in our modern progressive world, right? Sin is not a thing, right? We, we say we have no sin. No, there, there's no such thing as sin, okay? It's all about you and your choices, Again, this is what our modern world believes, doesn't it? How are we trying to solve all of the world's problems? We think if we can just get everyone educated, right? If we can just educate, get good education for the whole world. If we could just eliminate poverty, right? Get good education, eliminate poverty, uh, fix the healthcare system. And then, then friends, we will be able to live in a utopian society. We'll all wear matching sweaters and hold hands and drink decaf and sing Kumbaya. And it'll be great. The problem is our world has not come to the reality that sin is real and it is the problem. Sin is the problem, okay? And so this person here says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Come on, you know you're a sinner. I know I am too. And so it's silly to say we, we have no sin. If we deny the reality of sin, then we don't need a savior because there is nothing to be saved from. Therefore, they're not a Christian, okay? Here's the great problem with someone who would stand beside verse eight and say, no, I think it's true to, to say we have no sin. Here's the great problem with that. Mark 7, 21 through 23. This is what Jesus has to say. For within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Look, Jesus just said humans and people are sinful, okay? So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, okay, now we're back. Okay, remember I told you it's gonna go negative, positive, negative. We're back at verse nine. We're back at the positive. Here's what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, if we confess our sins, what does that mean? What does that mean to confess? Here's how you begin. Speak to God. Say the specific sin. Acknowledge its sinfulness. Ask forgiveness. Ask for help. Take the next steps. Okay? How, how do we confess sin? Here's how, you, here's how you do it. You speak to God. Don't need anybody else. Don't have to speak through anyone else. You speak directly to him. You're a Christian You're loved by God. He is listening. You speak to him, okay? 
You name the sin. Say it out loud if you have to, but you name the sin. This is how confession goes. God, I've been walking in pride. I was talking with so-and-so today, and in my heart, all I could feel is that you're dumb and I'm better than you, and I know that is sin. Okay, so, so you're talking to God, you've named what it is, you've said out loud, and you've acknowledged that it's sin. The, the, sometimes I get, when, I, when I'm confessing, I go, okay, God, today I was walking in pride, but you under, you know, um, that person really is dumb. And um, so, 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 so don't justify, okay? Don't justify. You say what it is. You call it sin. God, this is sin, and I, I was wrong to do that. You, God, would you forgive me of this? I know it was wrong, but I, I, would you forgive me? In addition, I need your help, okay? I need your help. Would you help me not do that? And then you're taking steps, meaning um, you are putting things in the way of you in that sin. That's confession. That's confession. Again, I'll just, I'll read those again really quickly if, if you're taking notes. Confession is speaking to God, saying the specific sin, acknowledging its sinfulness, asking forgiveness, asking for help, and taking steps, okay? Now, I was confronted with this in this text today, uh, in, in this text this week. If upon conversion, okay, we're going to get theological for just a second. Hang with me. I'm almost done. If at conversion... We confess our sins and we're forgiven of our past, present, and future sins. You guys believe that? That's what happens at conversion, okay? You confess your sins, you're forgiven of all your sins. Boom, forgiven. Then throughout the Christian life, do you still need to repent and confess sin? Aren't you already forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future? Very interesting question. Yes, the answer is yes. Martin Luther, the great reformer, um, as he nailed his 95 thesis to uh, the door in Wittenberg, the very first one said, the Christian's life is that of continual repentance. Why? Why then do we continue repenting throughout all of life as a Christian? It's very simple. Because we love God. Because we love him and sin is ultimately against him. And even though he's already forgiven us of past, present, and future sin, when we walk in sin, it's still against him and we love him and we want to serve him. And when it happens, we say, God, I'm sorry. I know you forgive me, but I want to confess and repent, God, I'm sorry. That's why, that's why we continue. Verse 10 the last negative, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is a person who says that we can now live without sinning, okay? If, if we say we have not sinned, okay? So you're a Christian, you're walking in the Christian faith. Like, yeah, I used to be a sinner. That was way back then. But today, I've got it all under control. I've got everything taken care of. I can say I have not sinned. I haven't been walking in sin. I haven't thought a sinful thought. I haven't done a sinful thing. I've been walking in true 110% pure righteousness. I am, da-da-da-da, super Christian. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. There's a story about uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher. Um, someone was explaining this um, interesting doctrine to him saying, I've, uh, you know, I, I was a sinner, sure, uh, but now I've, you know, I've got it figured out. I've been walking with Jesus faithfully, uh, haven't, haven't been sinning at all. Uh, and so Charles Haddon Spurgeon invited this guy to his house for dinner uh, and asked him to explain. Uh, and so he went on and on about how he hadn't been sinning and been walking in perfection and everything's been going great. And at the end of the dinner, Charles Haddon Spurgeon picked up a glass of water and threw it in his face. Now, um, I don't recommend that tactic, okay? Um, but, but he did that to show that, yeah, we, we are sinners and, watch this, simultaneously saints. That's the beauty of the Christian life. We are sinners and simultaneously we are saints. Again, 
the believer says, I am not there. I'm not, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was. That is the cry of the Christian. Now, I'll close with this. Verse nine again, because it is so incredibly rich. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. This word stuck out to me so much this week. He is faithful and just to forgive us. He's just to forgive. Now, again, imagine you're in a courtroom and there's the judge and he's sitting behind his desk and someone is standing in front of him who has committed a terrible crime. They have committed the crime of murder. And the judge says, sir, I forgive you. You're free to go. Now, in that moment, in that courtroom, wouldn't something stir inside of you that would go, judge, that's not just. He, he committed murder. He needs to be punished. Do something. You're the judge. You can't just let him go. That's not just. Justice would be giving him rightful punishment for, for what he's done. Get, punish him. I think anybody would do that, especially if, if this person had murdered someone that we love or someone that we know, we would be crying out. No, you can't just you know, send him out scot-free. That's not just. So how is it just here? How is it just for God to do this here? Isn't God just? So how can God be faithful and just to forgive us? Listen, we are the murderers. We are the sinners who deserve to be punished. So why is God just to forgive us? He is just to forgive us because the punishment that should have come to us went to Jesus on the cross. So we can read verse 9. If we confess our sins, you need to confess sin today? I know I do. I bet you do too. If we confess our sins, he is faithful He's faithful. He's going to do it. Faithful and just. Why is it just? Because the punishment that should have come to us went to Jesus. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. Is that what it says? No. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look back at verse 7. You'll see that word all again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Verse nine again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. Let me close with this. If you try to cover up your sin, God will expose it. But if you expose it, God will cover it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this great text. I thank you for your word, which is so rich and so deep, and there's so much more here to, to talk about and look at and to meditate on in your word. I, I hate to move beyond this text because it is so rich and so beautiful, but I pray now that we would drink deeply of your word. We would let these things rest in our heart, let your word come down and rest upon us and stir in us. I pray now for a great confession today, Father, that people here in this room would come confessing, would come exposing would come saying out loud to you, these are the things that I have done, I have sinned, here they are, that we would allow your light to shine in our hearts and in our lives. There would be a great sense of sorrow that we have wronged and sinned against a holy God. And I pray today for great rejoicing. Great rejoicing in that we can be faithfully and justly forgiven, 
that you are faithful to forgive. God, I pray now for the people in the room who just don't feel forgiven. God, let them know that you're faithful, that you are true to your word, that if you say you've forgiven them, then you forgave them and it's over. That's it. Help us to trust your word, that you are faithful, that you are just. Help us to walk out of here today feeling that we are righteous, that we've been cleansed by that blood, that there's no need to hang our head in shame before your throne. We can come freely to your throne through the grace and through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I pray for sorrow and confession, and then I pray for rejoicing today, God. As the band comes back and we sing, help us to lift our voice and praise, praise to the God who loves us and who has forgiven us and who wants to see us walk in the light as he is in the light. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus.